Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This presentation of In Their Own Words is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. By 1943, the war in the Pacific burned in its full fury. After the bloody engagements at Guadalcanal, it was time to continue the offensive. On November 20th, the United States Navy planned a daring frontal assault against the westernmost edge of the Japanese Empire. The target was the island of Beishio in the Tarawa Atoll. Only 300 acres in size, it was protected by 5,000 hardened Imperial Japanese Marines. The only route to the island was to attack the beaches facing the lagoon, but concentrated on those beaches like a living fortress wall were thousands of Japanese. Marines manning countless machine guns, mortars, and artillery pieces. Into them would go the best of America's youth, the second division of the U.S. Marine Corps. They would use amphibious tractors and assault boats to reach the beaches. After that, their only protection was bravery and a khaki shirt. It was the first amphibious assault against heavily defended beaches in U.S. history. By day's end, hundreds of Americans would be dead or dying on the sun-parched reefs and island sands. Ed Moore was a master sergeant in the U.S. Marines. His job was to drive one of the 175 amphibious tractors, or Amtraks, onto the beach. Once there, he was to attempt to breach the seawall that girdled the island and make his way inland. But the run to the beaches was an arduous, almost ballet-like series of steps that needed to be practiced on other less contested shores. Before uh, D November the 20th, 1943, the D-Day of the operation, we had had two practice runs at, at a little island in the south of New Hebrides called Ifadi. And we had uh, maneuvers uh, on the 6th of November and again on the 9th of November and went over the uh, battle plan in those two maneuvers. So when we uh, got up to Tarawa, although we had never seen it before or anything, we knew basically the formations and how we would be lifted over the side from the hatch of the transports and the LVTs would be uh, sent over the side uh, without any troops in them because the, the slings were on the inside. So when we got in the water and the different LVTs knew exactly where they had to go to pick up their infantry troops that were in what were called LCVPs or landing craft vehicle personnel. 
and these LVCPs would come alongside of the tractor that their men were supposed to be in and uh, uh, make a, a, a Navy boat to an, a, a Marine Amtrak. Uh, and then once you got your troops aboard and a, a, the allotted ones that were going to be in our element, we uh, started forming in what you call rendezvous circles. There may be five to six, uh, maybe sometimes seven vehicles in one of these rendezvous circles. And that, uh, the rendezvous circles serve two purposes in, in this aspect, is that they are time killer. If something is held up, then you can circle in any uh, length of time necessary and also you can control any number of vehicles in a given area. Now, when all of the infantry troops were loaded aboard from the transport ships that were out uh, some 10,000 yards or so from the northwest corner of, of this uh, island called BDO, that uh, we moved in to the uh, outer lagoon that was surrounded by a reef that was uh, so deep that it didn't affect us having to climb over the outer reef. And we headed in three columns into the lagoon and headed to the east end of this island called Bedio. Now Bedio itself at the, at the Green Beach from Red Beach 1 straight down Green Beach to the corner of the island was 800 yards, but the island itself was two and a half miles long. So when from the transport area, when all the troops were in the vehicles, the Amtraks that they were uh, assigned to, when they, they were all loaded in three different columns, we headed to the east end, but maybe six to 7,000 yards off from the east end of the island, which uh, was called the Birds of Beak, which was naturally the head and the western end of the island. Well, the other end of the island was slender in nature and it formed the shape of a bird uh, perching on a something or other. So we moved in, all three uh, of these saltways uh, moved in to the lagoon, went to the eastern portion of the island, some six to seven thousand yards out from it though and also started our rendezvous circles in that area and then uh, they had some communication problems between the heavy warships lobbing their shells in from the cruisers to battleships and coordinating them with airstrikes from car the carrier uh, airplanes. So while that was going over, and like I explained that these rendezvous circles served the two purposes, you could control any number of vehicles in a given area and also use it to kill time. So we sat down there on the eastern uh, end of uh, BDO for maybe an hour, maybe an hour and 10 minutes or so. Of course, uh, I didn't have a watch and you don't care about time in these situations. So I just have to estimate how long we were there and how long it took us to get to the beach and stuff like that. But when the time did 
finally come that the airstrikes were over with or being coordinated properly and the shells from the ships that were pounding the island uh, and then whoever was in charge decided that it was time to form these assault waves. Well, each one of the waves was assigned an LCVP with a Navy officer in it and his uh, uh, enlisted crew of sailors. And it was standard practice in those days uh, for a, a LCVP or a Higgins boat to, uh, to uh, guide or lead an assault wave down the line of departure. And when you got to a certain point, in this case, it was a ship by the name of, uh, of the uh, USS Pursuit was a minesweeper. And once he had finished his minesweeping job at the entrance of this lagoon I just mentioned, then he positioned himself off the bird's beak some six or 7,000 yards directly off from the bird's beak. And then when the word was given to form the three assault waves, these three Navy boats assigned that these assault waves were approximately 300 yards apart. In other words, my first assault wave started moving from the east side going to the western end towards the pursuit. And these other two waves, 300 yards uh, the, first, the second wave from me, and then the third wave was 300 yards more out from the second wave, then all three of us was heading from an east to west uh, direction, but uh, guiding on the USS Pursuit that was anchored off uh, where he should have been at the bird's beak. And uh, at a certain time when this LCVP got within so many yards of the pursuit, the commander on the pursuit gave the lieutenant in these three boats that was guiding these three waves a signal uh, to make a left flank movement. Now the way that was affected is quite simple. All of the vehicles uh, aboard the LVTs and the LCVPs had a set of semaphore flags in them. And it was uh, a standard uh, uh, procedure that when uh, you was uh, gonna make a, a maneuver imminently, the coxswain in the LCVP is an example. One of his men would hold this uh, semaphore flag over his head. In turn, my crew chief, who was uh, platoon sergeant Lester H. Harrison, got one of our flags and held it up, and every tractor that was following me along the line of departure held a flag up, uh, notifying that they were uh, ready to do whatever the next command was gonna be. And the next command was gonna be that when the uh, tractor 49 got to a certain point close to the pursuit, the uh, officer in the LCVP that was our guide dropped his flag, Harrison dropped his flag and all simultaneously the other vehicles dropped their flags indicating that they knew that we were gonna make this left flank movement and head to the beach. And that's how we uh, formed the three assault waves with me being the guide for the first one. And once I made a, a my left flank movement, I immediately picked up the end of the island that we were gonna land on because you run out of palm trees. And it was very easy for me to know exactly where I was going to land. And that's why they selected me, being said I was gonna be that right guide to uh, bear right in, onto that 
uh, Birdsbeak area for the other tractors uh, could do as you know as good as they could to keep in a in a fairly decent line, although it was quite messy. But that was the theory of it. Uh, that all the vehicles would arrive uh, about at the same time. But uh, uh, this uh, reef that we had trouble with and why the LVTs were selected uh, to make that landing had the capabilities of climbing over this known reef that an LCVP or regular Navy landing craft uh, wouldn't be able to get over. So when we climbed over the outer reef that was five or six hundred yards from the beach itself, we dropped into uh, deep water again, uh, even on the inner reef. And it wasn't until uh, we got in possibly uh, maybe 400 yards that we were still waterborne in certain places. But uh, that uh, another reason that I felt lucky myself and getting in, uh, getting my vehicle in all in one piece until we hit the seawall, although we were sprinkled with uh, mil uh, 13 millimeter bullets uh, while we were well out at, uh, in the lagoon, uh, they didn't do us any damage. A lot of those bullets uh, were losing their strength and you could hear them hit the front of the cab and zing off and stuff like that and left some, some bullet holes in it and all, but it didn't do any damage. But uh, there was a sandbar about 100 yards out from the bird's beat that I also had to cross over, and you couldn't see it until you got right up on it because it was only 12 to 18 inches above the lagoon water. And so I got over it, and even when I got over it for the next 100 yards, on some occasions I was still buoyant. And I couldn't, you know, it, 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 this happened that way. I might have been in a shell hole that had been dropped or something like that. But then when I had, uh, finally got up to the beach itself and this buck sergeant says that he wanted to go over the wall inland, then I had to this pause momentarily and uh, to change from water drive to land drive that these two Marines hurled out of the vehicle uh, and knocked this... Uh, uh, bird's beak machine gun nest out then this all happened in 90 seconds or less it takes an hour and a half to tell about it but it this is a very brief event but at the same time when I was crawling up on this seawall and this other machine gun opened up and knocked my dashboard wiring out two other of the marines had bailed out and and knocked uh, this other gun out and by that time, uh, like I say, the buck sergeant had been shot in the neck and he was being taken care of. And when I had nosed up and he had told my crew chief, Lester H. Harrison, platoon sergeant, that he wanted to go inland, I told Harrison that I heard that and I started the move up on the seawall. And as soon as I raised up a little bit to get the front cleats up on the, on the coconut seawall, a machine gun opened up and came, uh, the bullets came through the, the front of the vehicle underneath the bow and knocked my dashboard wiring out and it made the vehicle inoperable. So all the troops bailed out and started the land battle right then and there on what was called the bird's beak uh, on the uh, western end of uh, Red Beach One.
The machine gun bullets came in right where the dashboard was. Myself and my radio operator, whose name was Richard G. Uh, Thornson, uh, or Robert G. Thornson, uh, that neither one of us were hit by these bullets other than the fact that one of the first ones came by my left cheek and hit this buck sergeant in charge of the infantry in the neck and blood was this squirt in every place from his wound, but he had enough left in him that he told his troops in back of him to bail out, to, you know, to uh, get out of the vehicle, in which they did. As soon as all the infantry troops uh, uh, got out under the sergeant's orders, then I helped Thornson get by me because he was stuck in the, uh, his radio slot and I wanted to make sure that he got out, so I helped him get out. It's not a very small uh, or a big opening to get out, and I made sure he was out, and then I squeezed out myself and went over the side where the infantry, and on that uh, I can digress just a little bit by saying that this machine gun uh, that we landed by had been knocked out by two of the infantry uh, immediately uh, that was right on the point itself. Now this other machine gun that hit me when I was crawling up on the seawall, other infantrymen from that platoon that I had taken in got it into it and knocked it out with hand grenades. And in all the, the two machine gun nests that were knocked out by these uh, uh, infantrymen from the 3rd uh, Bat 2nd, uh, th that's a 3rd Battalion 2nd Marine Regiment, uh, knocked these two machine guns out with their hand grenades. And uh, later on, when I went over the wall myself carrying ammunition, uh, to future or the to machine gunners that were setting up their machine guns. I had a lot of ammo aboard the, my vehicle and I counted uh, 10 dead Japs in uh, these two gun positions. So they did a remarkable job in getting them knocked out without uh, doing any more damage to us. Well, I went back aboard to get our rifles because we we're on the beach without anything and I looked at them and both of them are out of action. But I, went and I took them both out and I asked Tackaberry if he knew his rifle number and he spouted it out to me and I handed it to him in two pieces and the only thing that was holding it together was the leather sling, uh, you know, that was holding the, the two pieces together and of course mine was in the same position. Well, what Tackaberry did after fixing this buck sergeant up, and he was pretty seriously wounded, and Tackaberry told this sergeant, he says, Sarge, you're not going to do any fighting today or something, uh, words to that effect. And he says, my rifle is broken. And just, uh, you know, for a, a T.O. weapon check or whatnot, I'm giving you my rifle that's broken, and I'm taking yours because you're not going to need it. Well, I wasn't that lucky. I didn't have anybody around me that I could get one of their rifles. Yeah, I didn't have a weapon. But by the same token, we had a lot of ammunition for our 250 calibers and 230 calibers that was... Uh, uh, inside the uh, cargo hold, and the 250s were mounted on the cab, on top of the cab. And Tackaberry and I, uh, when we left Ifati, the maneuvers down there on the 12th, we loaded up about eight or 10 uh, boxes of 50 caliber and 30 caliber and put them under the stand uh, that you'd stand on 
you know, to fire the 50s. So underneath there, we had plenty of ammunition, and that's what I busied myself doing, being that I didn't have a weapon. I would go back aboard my vehicle, and if a machine gunner, whether he was a 50 caliber uh, that was brought in by M Company, the weapons company of the 3rd Bat 2nd, uh, had 50s and 30s, and they also had uh, 60 and 81 millimeter mortars uh, and whatnot. Well, I took care of their ammunition for 50s and 30s, and I went back aboard that vehicle three or four times, uh, getting our supply of ammo that was doing nobody any good and kept uh, uh, taking it up to the machine gunners that were setting up uh, so-called front line uh, things that was about 20 yards deep. And that's uh, uh, that whole uh, Birdsbeak area, we did secure it pretty far inland up to 55, maybe 70 yards within an hour. That whole area had been secured. So it was pretty safe to do it, but they still needed ammunition to keep uh, firing, to keep the Japs you know, down that was uh, firing at us inland. I was wounded myself that afternoon, and uh, a mortar shell, I was uh, on the beach, and one of the Marines, uh, his kneecap had been blown off, uh, whether it was by a mortar shell or a rifle bullet or whatnot, I don't know, but his left kneecap had been blown off, and I was using uh, his band, uh, first aid kit and was putting a bandage on his left knee to keep the sand and stuff out after I put the sulfur uh, powder on his uh, wound and everything. And it just finished tying it off when a mortar shell hit right in back of me and hit me in the shoulder and the tail end and hit my helmet in the back uh, that I found a piece of shrapnel in my helmet uh, tangled up in the camouflage cover I had uh, later on and then I was out of it myself for a while and after I got over the shock I reached back and this wound this felt like a, a, a softball the size of a softball uh, and whatnot but I didn't worry about it and uh, of course a certain amount of shock sets into your system whether you want it to or not but uh, in maybe less than a half an hour, then I was back okay again. And I started carrying this ammunition I was mentioning earlier and started operating. And I didn't have a bandage, a friend of mine by the name of Andrew Garcia that was uh, in the M Company, one of the weapons outfits. And old Andy, he says, uh, he called me Margie. Old Andy called me Margie on account of I always was talking about my girlfriend. And he says, uh, Margie, he says, what is that thing on your shoulder? And I said, I guess I picked up a piece of shrapnel. And he says, well, here, let me get it bandaged for you. And he used his own first aid kit and put sulfur powder on it and wrapped it up the best he could. And that's how I was taken care of. But I stayed there on the beach, you know, until a lieutenant came up and says, we have a vehicle now and uh, we have five or six guys that we're gonna put aboard and you can be evacuated. I'd been asked by the same officer about two hours earlier when he had a vehicle to leave 
And I told him, I said, sir, I'm not going to leave this island as long as this one uh, anti-boat gun is still firing at the vehicles in the lagoon. And I says, I'm dissatisfied staying right here. And I stayed there for a couple of extra hours and a tank came in when the uh, M34 tanks started coming in. This lieutenant told this uh, one driver about this anti-boat gun that was holding up a lot of vehicles on the beach. He says, see if you can uh, dig him out and, and do something with him. And the tank went down Green Beach 1 and went uh, in an opening uh, on Green Beach 1. And about 30 minutes later, he came back and says, okay, sir, we got it. And then uh, when the lieutenant asked me again, there was a vehicle that pulled up an LVT-2 that uh, he had five or six of us wounded guys uh, to put on it, then I agreed to go ahead and be evacuated. On this LVT-2 that I was put on, and I was uh, uh, tagged as being wounded and what had been done for me for the benefit of the uh, Navy ship that I was going to be evacuated to, as all the other wounded were tagged with their wound and what medication they had. And when we backed off, I noticed something that uh, right to this day is a mystery to me, but there was a, a, a Navy captain aboard this LVT-2. I don't know his name. I don't know how he got aboard this LVT-2 or anything. All I know is that he had the insignia of a bird captain, an eagle on his collar with a Navy insignia on the other one and a soft hat on. He didn't have a helmet. He had a soft hat on with the Navy insignia on it. And like I say, where this captain came from, I have no idea. But this uh, spit of sand and coral uh, was about 100 yards off from the bird's beak and Marines coming in uh, in the water, wading in during the day, there was about 20 or 25 of them that had been shot and was laying on this uh, uh, spit of coral and sand that was probably uh, 75 or maybe 80 yards long and about 10 yards wide. So uh, when we turned around and started heading out to this, well, when we got to that uh, coral uh, sand spit, this Navy captain had the crew chief tell his driver to stop. And he says, I'm going to get out of here and you keep an eye on me. And if I go down, you get the hell out of here. But he says, I'm going to check these Marines and see if any of them uh, need help. And this captain by himself got out of that vehicle and checked everyone. He says, like I say, that I was still on my feet and all, although I was quite weak and all. Uh, me and the crew chief, he says, you keep an eye on me, and if I go down, you get the hell out of here, is that we stood up and looked over the side. Now, we're taking small arms fire. The machine guns that had been doing so much damage earlier had apparently been secured, and we were just getting uh, rifle fire. And you could hear them zinging off the back of the vehicle and uh, spitting up dirt around the captain as he was going checking these Marines. And he checked every Marine that was uh, lay, laying on that spit of coral about 100 yards off from the bird's beak. And it took him about 15 minutes. And I don't blame him a bit, but he says, I checked all of them and they're all dead. And he says, let's get out of here. And he's the one that directed the crew chief what ship to take us to that was designated as an evacuation ship called the USS Middleton.
And that's where we headed. And right to this day, on every November the 20th, when I, this element comes up, I remember what this captain did, and I call it in my military journal an act of bravery as I saw it. And every November the 20th, I say a prayer for that guy because he checked them and found out that they had all been killed. But he took the time and risked his own life. And right to this day, I don't know who he is. And I tried to find out through different sources, and I just run into a block wall. Boy, I tell you that uh, he's never been forgotten, not by me. The, the Marines uh, that saw what was happening on the beach and not many of the vehicles, uh, the Japs let the first uh, few of us get in, but uh, what was very devastating is that when they went out, uh, the original landing wave uh, got quite a few of the troops ashore. But then when they went out, to get a, 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 to act as a ferry, you know, to get the troops shuttled back in, uh, into the beach from the, from the uh, Navy LCVPs that were hung up or stopped by the outer, or the, the sea, uh, what do you call it, the reef, on the, uh, the five or 600 yards out reef. Uh, then they, they just uh, saw that they wasn't gonna make it and they asked these, uh, they didn't have to, but somebody on that uh, reef line dropped the ramp on one of these LCVPs and the Marines started wading in. And the water, some of them was deep and some of them drowned as soon as they stepped off from the ramp of the LCVP. But a lot of them found footing and whatnot and started wading in and that was the, the way it happened the rest of the day that uh, the Amtraks uh, would go out, the ones that were able to get men and bring them back in. But the infantry themselves, they knew that they had a job to do. Their buddies in the first wave or so was on the beach and needed them. So they just uh, had no orders to do it. It, it wasn't in the blueprint that uh, if the vehicles are knocked out, you will wade in. There was no such thing, but they did it on themselves uh, collectively. And the Marines just started wading in. A lot of them, I, I was there on the beach and saw it, and I, I would look out and see maybe a, a platoon uh, in, in line uh, uh, wading in with their weapons held high out of the water and everything. And then I might take a, a, a case of this belted ammunition up, and I would come back only a couple of minutes later, and there'd be nobody out there because they had all been cut down by these machine guns that were still uh, peppering. This was, like I say, early in the morning, probably between uh, 9.30 and 11 o'clock. It, it was just devastating, but the Marines still kept going in. And that was one of the factors that one of the very few Japanese that was taken prisoner. I think that there was a number of Korean uh, laborers that were taken prisoner, but out of the 4,800 or so Japanese 
special uh, forces on there, only 17 of them were taken prisoner. And amongst them, they says one of the more devastating things to us was where uh, where these Marines kept coming in uh, in, into our fire. He says we couldn't understand uh, what they had to gain by it. So it uh, was a surprise to the Japanese that the Marines uh, showed the resilience that they had and, and, and the courage uh, to face this fire that was uh, wiping them out. But they uh, they stayed with it and that's how the battle was won. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. By the time the fourth wave of Marines prepared to disembark, the invasion plan had been shattered. Most of the Amtraks were out of action, so it was up to the landing boats to get the Marines ashore. As the boats carried the fourth wave from the transports to the island, they slammed into the reef almost a half mile from the beaches. Ramps dropped, and the young warriors scrambled onto the reef, or sometimes, tragically, into deep water, where many of them drowned under heavy loads. But the fortunate ones, shoulder-deep in the reddening surf, still had to wade ashore in a hailstorm of mortar, heavy machine gun, and rifle fire. The Japanese had zeroed in on the landing positions, and Marines fell everywhere. In some areas, the losses were over 50%. Young Tommy Reed waded through the madness toward the worst of the beaches known as the Pocket. It was here that the fire was most intense and deadly. As Marines fell wounded or dead into the surf, Reed resolved to make it to the sand to have his revenge. The path from Guadalcanal to Tarawa had been an odd one for him. And it started about 3 o'clock, 3.30 in the morning when you got the, the signal, you know, to get in your group because you're going to go over the side. I could be wrong, but I think we went over, the, my particular group went over the side around 4 o'clock, you know, starting to get, it was starting to get light, 4.35 o'clock in the morning. Because this is summertime down in there, and, you know, it's not wintertime, you know, so the sun's coming up at 5 o'clock. And we get in the Higgins boats, and it's like this for a long time, you know. Because uh, the beach was never secured the f first day, you know. There's a lot of infighting, a lot of close fighting, which I never really got into because I got hurt the first half hours on the beach, you know. That made me mad, you know, made me mad. I didn't fire a shot, never had a chance. Because our job, oh, how I got into that, I went ashore, I went, I got to back up. After we hit New Zealand, I had 32 attacks of malaria. I'd been hit a couple of times, been hurt, concussion a couple of times. So I was in the hospital ready to go back to the States, okay? 
The night before I was supposed to go back to the States, all my buddies gave me a, a party. Well, the next morning, I'm supposed to be on board ship at 7.30 in the morning. I'm 60 miles out in the boondocks on a, in a truck with six other drunks because they, we got stoned and I missed the ship. They threw me in a cadre company. They didn't bust me. They threw me in a cadre company. You know what I mean? This is the people who are not assigned to any group because I was with the 10th Marines at that time. When I got in Central Park, that was the headquarters company, and they had a band there. So I didn't want to go in the band. Then I went to the band room, found a clarinet, started playing it, and the Warren officer's eyes popped. He says, what's your name? And I told him, you're not in the band, are you? I said, no. He says, I told him where I was, and he says, I'll get you in the band. And I said, well, that's not too bad. All he did was play music, you know. All the other guys are out there in the boondocks going through all this chairs, getting ready for, we didn't know what, but we're getting ready for the next landing, right? Come time for us to go to Tarawa, I'm in the band. The instrument stays behind. I'm issued a carbine, you know. <laughs> and bandolier of ammunition. And uh, I've got charge of 14 guys, and I'm, we're security for Corman, and if needed, stretcher bearers. Bandsmen, we had almost 100% casualties, both killed and wounded in the bands, you know. And we weren't training. Band member or infantryman mattered not. For two weeks later, Reed found himself on board a transport making its way to the heavily defended Tarawa Atoll. He was to be a part of the largest amphibious assault to date. By the moon's light, he stood at the railing of the transport, waiting to board the landing boats for the ride to shore. He was to be in the fourth wave, the deadliest assault in the history of amphibious warfare. When we got off the... Uh I figured we were uh, maybe two, three hours out there. Because it was daylight now, real daylight. I'm not sure. And uh, we circled around for a long time and then our group was in the fourth wave and in the area, uh, it brought back my memory when I looked at the map, it was Red Beach 1 to the right of that area, you know. But I was fortunate enough to get on a, nothing touched me on the way in. I saw these young men that really that I, I can remember today and where they came from, they were a mortar battalion, they were a mortar group company. And these young kids were holding these, we call them clover leaves, mortars. They'd hold them over their head to keep them dry and walk in the bottom. You know, all of us sometimes had to do that because you'd walk along and if you were out there, you know, you could walk on coral, all of a sudden you ate a hole. Could be a foot, could be two feet, whatever it is. But everybody kept going. And there was nothing but machine gun fire, a lot of mortars. The first wave, there wasn't much action, you know. They let them get in, then they gave it to them. 
And of course, by now, by the fourth wave, everything was going on. The planes were strafing the beach and strafing them and the whatever the, anything bigger than that, I don't remember. They had gun emplacements, as you know. And what they were throwing out there, I don't know if they were 110s or 150s or what, you know, what they had on there. They had a big cannon, I, I know, on the end, because I, I saw it, you know. But they had these concrete gun emplacements. And then the, 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 that log wall is in my mind, you know, because it was about that high, you know, four or five feet high or something like that. My job was to get ashore, I had 14 people, and another platoon sergeant had an X number of people, and there were three groups of us to try to secure this area. I mean, we weren't looking to go in and take out that turret, or we weren't looking to do anything. I never fired a shot, okay? There was no reason. What am I gonna do, shoot the sky? Or just... We were taught never to shoot at random, you know? And I was worried to get our guys on safely, but there was no way. I was just fortunate enough that I was one of the guys that didn't get it bad. I could have been hit right in the head like anybody else, you know. It's, it's, it's amazing. And what you're, 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 not, you're not told by a colonel, you're not told by a general, you're not told over the loudspeaker, and you're told by your platoon sergeant who was in command of this, of this particular group. You know, I, when I went ashore, I was a staff sergeant. And I had my job to do, you know. And the job was get on a damn island and take whatever you got to take, whether it was a human being or a piece of land, you know, whatever it was. Seas were pretty calm. Tide was out, you know, and it was calm. There was none of this, you know. So when you're going over this, those nets, and the boat's gone this way, and the net stays out here, the boat's over here, you know. So you're going back and forth. But this, just get down, jump in the, your boat as it comes up, and that's it. Move to the front, you know. And all the, all the uh, officers and Commission officers were up front. All the rest of the people were back, back of us. The pilot of the Higgins boat, he's sitting up in the air, you know, looking over our heads. So he had it just as tough as we were, but it was out far, at 800 yards. Any, even a machine gun, you know, is, it's, it's starting to do this, you know. But when we got off the... Uh, I figured we were uh, maybe two, three hours out there. Because it was daylight now, real daylight. I'm not sure. And uh, we circled around for a long time and then our group was in the fourth wave and in the area, uh, it brought back my memory when I looked at the map, it was Red Beach 1 to the right of that area, you know. But I was fortunate enough to get on a, nothing 
touched me on the way in. I saw these young men that really that I, I can remember today and where they came from, they were a mortar battalion. They were a mortar group company. And these young kids were holding these, we call them clover leaves, mortars. They'd hold them over their head to keep them dry and walk in the bottom. You know, all of us sometimes had to do that because you'd walk along. And if you were out there, you know, you could walk on coral. All of a sudden you had a hole. Could be a foot, could be two feet, whatever it is. But everybody kept going. And there was nothing but machine gun fire, a lot of mortars. The first wave, there wasn't much action, you know. They let them get in, then they gave it to them. And of course, by now, by the fourth wave, everything was going on. The planes were strafing the beach and strafing them and the, whatever the, anything bigger than that, I don't remember. They had gun emplacements. And what they were throwing out there, I don't know if they were, 110s or 150s or what, you know, what they had on there. They had a big cannon, I, I know, on the end, because I, I saw it, you know. But they had these concrete gun emplacements. And the, 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 that log wall is in my mind, you know, because it was about that high, you know, four or five feet high or something like that. The rifles, whatever rifles they were using, whatever they were, if they were using rifles, I mean, it's, 30 or 3 was 500 yards, then they lose their power, right? So there wasn't a hell of a lot when we were, it was there, you know, but as we got in, it got tougher and tougher, and, and I'm going to have to say it. First words I said, oh, shit, we'll never get out of this goddamn thing, you know? It's a mindset, I can only thing I can say. It's mad, it's maddening. And, you're a team, but you're still your own man. You know, you got your job to do. You don't worry about this guy over here, this guy over here, and the guy in back here. You gotta keep going ahead. If he drops, you don't wait to help him. You know, you just go. Our job, once we got in, that was our job, but I had to get in. I had 14 people. To secure an area, they had, I don't think they really had an idea except what they thought was on that island. You understand? Because that place that they told us where they wanted us to go, I'm, I couldn't believe it, you know, when I finally got there. Because down below seemed it would be easy, a little easy, was easing off down there, you know. Well, there was all here, kinds right? of crap was going up there where we were. And it probably was going on down there, but I... I, you, you, you don't, you're not looking down to see what the hell's happening. You, you, you're your own man, you know. You're looking, what, you got a job. It was a long haul. It was a long haul. Then it was, like I made that statement about where we're so successful. The Marines are all screwed up. They didn't know what the hell was happening with us, you know. But I think what really what really did it, and I believe if you had any, if you talked to anybody else who were really involved with the first day, once you hit the beach, it was, it's, that was the beginning. 
We landed 800 yards out when it stopped. And he says, you got to get the hell off of this thing now. And we wanted him to turn it around. But he was hung up in there, you know, as far as it could go. I don't think I was on that beach five, ten minutes before I got it. Looking around, trying to find my guys. Couldn't find them. You know, I ended up with two guys I knew, you know. Mass. I say it was mass murder. Well, the first time I knew I was hit was Eddie Kojan, who, he was with me in the 10th Marines. And like, he was like glue to me. He stayed next to me all the time, you know. And uh, he was a kind of a kid that if, I never took advantage of him, you know. But he was a very good accordion player, could play real good jazz, and so I, you know, we got a little close in, in Wellington for about four or five months. And he was the one that saved my life. And I really believe this because I put up, when I was able to, I put up for him to get sighted. And some other lieutenant, I'm not going to mention his name, said, no, no there's that. I don't want to tell you what I told him, you know, later on when I got back to the States, because he got back too. Uh, you talking about minutes? I don't know. It could be like an eternity, you know, to, because once Eddie, once I got hit, I grabbed some sand, put it over the wound, had a, and in your gun belt, you had a package, uh, a battle, battle package, you know. I took that and put it over the thing and tied up my dungarees a little tight and tried to keep going, you know. Because I was still, they didn't get me my legs or anything. I was still walking around. Then I went out, you know, because to start, I was getting shrapnels to my legs and then my side. Then I got hit again in this area and it came out the other side. And, uh, oh, maybe I was 15 feet where the water was coming in. There were guys bobbing up and down, you know. And Eddie pulled me down to the beach. He found a, some debris out there, and I, I don't know what it was, a piece of wood or something. I still don't know. And he told me to grab a hold of it. I still, well, I knew what I was doing. I grabbed a hold of that thing, and he shoved me out, and I just floated out. And I was in the water, but Eddie Kojan got hit, and I saw him. He took off half his face, took his nose off, 
He's helping me. While he's helping me, pow, his whole face is gone. And he's still helping me, man. He's still helping me and talking to me, you know. And I'm saying, Eddie, get your ass out of here. I'm okay, I'm okay, you know. Finally got a hold of this thing and, and they were buoyant, you know, and he just shoved me out and I just, you know, that was it. You know, there's, there, are, there, there are riflemen are shooting at, at us, and so somebody, somebody's going to get, going to get something, going to get machine gun, you're going to get shrapnel or something, you know. It was maddening, there was a lot of noise, there was a little of uh, confusion on our side, as well as them, they would never give up. I saw them, I saw guys, you know, Laying down next to the to the the block of uh, logs, you know, they couldn't get hurt. And people saying, "Let's move out. Let's move out," you know. Well, my job was to go another direction. But um, a lot of I, at least four guys, they were down and they were in the on the beach on their chest. And then for some reason or other, I don't know who gave them the command. And they all stood up. Next thing I know, boom, they had no heads. That was the worst thing I ever saw in my life. My time on the island was very short. If I said it in minutes, it couldn't be more than a half an hour. And I'm already in the water, you know. The fact is, I was a little embarrassed. I was so embarrassed that I thought maybe I... Because I got shot here. I didn't get shot in the ass. The last thing I want to do is get shot in the ass, all of us. Because if you did, you were running, right? Next thing you know, I'm aboard a ship, people looking at me, you know. The Navy with uh, Higgins boats and small boats were going out, picking up guys out of the water who had been wounded and, you know, and then actually somebody picked me up and Took me aboard the ship. I didn't come on that. It didn't come on that ship. It was this boat that carried the six Marines. They hadn't gotten off yet. And one of the guys that I knew that was in the six Marines knew me. He says, "Here comes Enos. I got Enos, you know." Because I was out. I didn't know what was going on. Uh, the time I do remember grabbing a hold of this. It wasn't a, like a two by four. It was some debris that floated, and in salt water you float, you know. And then we had a lot of training with treading water, and I couldn't move this side, you know. But I moved my legs, because I had nothing hit my legs, you know, a few scratches. But I remember trying to stay afloat. I, I mean, I tried to survive. I mean, if you try to survive, you're gonna survive. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to answer that. Next thing I know, I'm on board a ship, and, they're, and they're, they gave me a pan that says, hold this, you know. I like to bend that thing while they're working on me, you know. And I remember the ring thing. I remember them cutting my boots off, you know. I didn't want them to take them. I wanted to... Silly thing, you know. And then you went home on a hospital ship? They trans us, transferred us from this transport, steamship. The hospital ship came alongside and 
we went across on ropes. You know, they put us in a, strapped us in this bag. And they, we went across the, from one ship to the other ship to the hospital ship. Hospital ship was out of ways. You know. I think we got on a, some type of a minesweeper or something like that. I don't remember. But we got off of that thing and then on the hospital ship. And we were on that for a while, you know, because they took as many people as they could get, then they went to Hawaii. And then they were working on me, developed gangrene. They had a punch in my lung, filled with water, so they did pneumothorax. And so I was in a bad way. We had a lot of men, Carmen. And every time you'd open your mouth or you, you know, like, I was, I was in good shape. And they'd hit you in the ass with morphine. I became a morphine addict. I had to do 30, 40 days and, and to get that out of my system. When we were getting ready to leave Aiehat's hospital, Julian Smith, a general, came by. I'm not, and this is no lie. I'm, I'm, I'm not ambulatory, I'm on a stretcher, whatever the hell it was, Gambia or whatever the hell. And he says, Sergeant Enos, great job. Take care, you're going home. And I said, this is Julian Smith, you know? And uh, I don't know how the, if they probably told him, as he, maybe that guy's Enos or this guy, the next guy, but I felt that he knew me. Admiral Gray, I'll never forget, he was the head of that department that I was in. I was on a hospital ship with a guy named Eddie, uh, not Eddie Gojohn, Eddie Hollinsworth. And he had both legs gone. Never saw him complain. Never complain. And so I backed off a lot, you know. There were a lot of guys worse off than me. But I was in a graft ward, you know. but. I had this lung problem. That was the, the worst thing I had. Gangway had already set in, then they worked on it, and that's about it. I say it was mass murder because there's no reason for us to be there. I, I've been called that I was wrong because they needed that island. And I say, you could have passed it. You could have starved them out. We had control of the seas, you know. And they had other places to go. It wasn't soon after that they went to Iwo, you know. So I don't know. It's only my, my belief. Yeah. Too many people were... You know, the price was too high. 
when you figure you throw five, five, six thousand people out there and they don't know the tide's out and we can't get in, you know. And I'll say this, when I was discharged from the Marine Corps, I took everything off, ribbons, medals, everything, because we had the, a parade in Pendleton. I was living in an apartment in Rancho Santa Fe. I was a country club Marine because I was on limited duty, you know. I took everything off, threw it in a corner. I don't have a, I don't have a ribbon. I don't have a medal. I don't even have my discharge papers. Serial number, I've, I've forgotten it. I didn't keep dog tags. I didn't keep nothing. I was pissed. I was really pissed. Now, I think there were a lot of guys like me, not the Marine itself, but it's the way, even the last few months that I was there, they had a, I had enough points to get out. You know, you, you, if you accumulate 184 points, you, that's it, you know. They're warm, and I got a warm body. And this is June 1945. I'm in La Jolla, spending the last weekend with my wife, because we're about ready to go back overseas again. And they wanted me back because I'd already had all this experience. And that was going to Okinawa and, and they'd, already, they'd already did the Imo thing, the Okinawa thing. Now they're going to make the big push to Japan, you know. And I have, I'll be honest with you, I didn't want to go. But ready or not, they fought the good fight as the young men of the amphibious attack units of the Marine Corps always will. They will rise to the occasion and fight in the name of freedom. And the next generation of Ed Moores and Tommy Reeds will be there to defend liberty at any cost. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions Incorporated in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. Produced by David Benson. Content written and produced by Rod Pyle. Engineered by Greg Bartheld, Brian Donovan, and Rod Pyle. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.